0: I want to add my welcome to you all this morning. We're about to give our attention to Genesis chapter 38. So, I invite you to, if you brought a Bible, please turn there or in your electronic devices. Um, I've chosen to entitle this sermon, Encouragement for the Sexually Broken. <laughs> um, probably a couple of things that need to be said off the bat here. Um, One, there's a tendency, I think, um, to approach the Bible as if it were simply a series of uh, heartwarming stories, kind of chicken soup for the soul, designed to inspire good, clean, successful living. Genesis 38 does not fit into that category. It's uh, gritty, it's painful. You're just simply reading the text, which I'm not going to read the entire text this morning, uh, but just reading it for some of you could provoke uh, what I call the echo effect of past trauma. Uh, nevertheless, as disturbing as it may be, this narrative, it, it moves beyond the ravages of sin, sexual sin in particular to engender hope for redemption and transformation. It is a testimony of the fact that God is bigger than our brokenness. And at times, God even... God asserts Himself even through our evil thoughts, evil words, evil actions in order to accomplish purposes that we had really no idea that he was going to do that. The second thing that should be said, um, given the world that we live in, given our nature, uh, to some degree, sexual brokenness affects Each and every one of us. It is an issue of massive, pervasive, multi-layered proportion. And because of that, it's really impossible to address um, every category. So my objective is to limit myself to the text of Genesis 38. Hopefully that's all right with you. But my goal in this sermon is to encourage you. And my prayer is that God would assert His power and His providence. And He would fulfill His promise to take us in our brokenness and redeem our brokenness and transform us into a company of peoples. That's the the banner over this sermon series. God is making broken people into a company of peoples. That is a community, a congregation, a church that grows up, into the fullness of Jesus Christ together. So, um, the message of Genesis 37 through 50, that's what we we're looking at up till Christmas, is that God is shaping a people for His glory and for the blessing of the nations. And He enters in sympathetically uh, to the totality of human experience. There's not some categories that he moves in and others that he doesn't. And and, and the the way I think that encourages us, at least it should encourage us, these, these texts, is that God sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and God is with you. And in Christ, according to Genesis 38, God redeems both the wayward and the wounded and this morning, our Lord Jesus Christ invites both the sexually immoral and the sexually betrayed to turn in His direction to Him. And so, um, let's do that now. I want you to pray with me, and then we'll, we'll look at Genesis 38. We're so introspective at times, Lord, so self-conscious. I mean, even singing the songs we've sung this morning, uh, there, there could be a temptation to be more aware of our brokenness than your redeeming grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we would be more aware of the redeeming grace—it's grace, in Christ, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We turn to you, Lord Jesus. You're our only hope. Our only hope is in you. We love you, and um, I pray that by the, your grace and that you would you would help us to receive that love to. Our disposition would not be just to lean towards you, move towards you, seek you, which is so fundamental, but that simultaneously we could receive of the outpouring of your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that we might experience with our spiritual senses your affection and your, your pleasure in redeeming and saving, and redeeming, and restoring a people for your glory. So we just want to pray that you'd make us profoundly aware of and attentive to you, Lord Jesus, throughout this time we have together now. in, in the word that you have breathed out, oh God, yeah. move among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well... In reading the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37 to 50, one is faced with the question what's chapter 38 doing here? But these 14 chapters are not solely about Joseph. Genesis 37 through 50 is a story of an entire family, a family that has been torn apart by. Favoritism and pride and envy and hatred and conspiracy and lies. And chapter 38 draws our attention to yet another step in the downward spiral and disintegration of this family. The family that we must keep in mind throughout this whole section of Scripture that God has promised this particular family. He has promised to multiply them and bless them and make this family a company of peoples. That is why the first sentence in Genesis chapter 38 is so striking. It says, at that time Judah went down from his brothers. There's something like profoundly spiritually symbolic about this. God had promised that this particular family was going to become a great nation and a blessing to all the nations. And instead, they're just unraveling. And Judah, in particular, had no interest in being part of God's plan for this family. And so, he went down. Away from his brothers away from the family. So there's a descending trajectory. It's no surprise, no surprise because as the fourth son of Leah, Leah, who was the first but unwanted and unloved wife of Jacob, Judah's Grandfather Laban had resorted to... Sunday, we'll use football terminology. He trickeration in order to offload Leah onto Jacob. And Jacob showed Leah very little, if any, love or affection. According to Genesis chapter 33, the second rate status of Leah and her sons, her four sons, is just amplified as Jacob makes... His, his personal preference, very cruelly obvious, he, as he's worried about this violent reception by his brother Esau, Jacob uses Leah and her sons as human shields to enable the escape of Rachel and Joseph, should that have been necessary. And, and really, it's on account of things like this. It, it's it's those, those kinds of experiences that um, I think it's safe for us to assume that Jer- Judah Carried around a bit of relational and um, emotional baggage. And so rather than live like some second class citizen on the fringe of the family, uh, fringe of this family of blessing, (laughs) Judah up and leaves. Or maybe, as I said, he down and leaves. He goes down from his brother's. And perhaps you can sympathize. I mean, we we could sympathize with him, right? It's really hard to find fault with this decision. I mean, how long do you remain with a family this messed up and this broken? How long could you stay with a father like Jacob if you happen to be anybody in the family other than Joseph? Perhaps you can think of someone who has tried to make a clean break from their past for exactly the same reasons. Maybe you have, at some point or another, sought to do this. Had enough of this family. Had enough of this town. Had enough of these friends. And so, there's a departure. There's a separation. Now, certainly there, there are circumstances there are times, situations, when moving out, moving away from a very unhealthy situation may be wise, may be necessary. But in this case, in this case, the problem with Judah's situation, it, it, he's not simply turning his back on his family. He, Judah, is intentionally, self-consciously turning his back on God and God's promise, God's purpose, God's plan for this family. And so what he does is he immerses himself in the Canaanite world where he finds a new friend named Hira, and he finds a wife, and he engages in a new community, a whole new set of relationships. And, it, you know, it's right... It's right in that truth all by itself that Moses is telling a cautionary tale to his original audience. You see, there's, there's this great danger when one assimilates oneself into the fabric of a godless culture. It's hard to be in and not of a sinful group. And then after leaving his family, Judah... I mean it's it's the worst case scenario. He just rapidly becomes enmeshed in false worship and personal wickedness and all the social evils of that particular culture. Now it's also important to register that Judah's descent into darkness was not just because he's you know drinking so deeply of the attitudes and the ideas and the the lifestyle of his Canaanite neighbors. Judas' clean break approach didn't fail because he chose like the wrong new situation. The reason it failed is because the problem with the clean break approach is you can't make a clean break with yourself. Right? You can take yourself... Out of a situation, but you can't take your personal pathologies with you out of that situation. You take them with you wherever you go. So Judah, as we've already seen, is I mean, he he shows evidence of being a natural leader. After all, you know, it it takes a certain measure of, (laughs) I suppose, charismatic influence to effectively unite ten brothers of different mothers. On a plan for a profit making disposal of their brother Joseph. That's a gift. Problem is, as Judah's own new family in the new world implodes, he inevitably is perpetuating and exacerbating the very same brokenness he had learned from his father Jacob. Here's what I mean. Let's start with sexual brokenness. Father Jacob, Father Jacob's sex life was characterized by minimal restraint. He, He juggled relationships with four wives, for goodness sake. Likewise, Judah asserted minimal discipline over his sexual desires. He shows no discernible respect or restraint when it comes to the pursuit of a wife in his new community. Look now at Genesis 38, 1 and 2. It happened at that time, the time when Joseph was being taken down to Egypt, that Judah went down from his brothers. Joseph went involuntarily, Judah went voluntarily down. And turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hera, there's his new buddy. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, Moses uses this expression, the same expression, took and went in. He uses that throughout Genesis when describing lustful desire and transgression. I mean, we're not even told her name. She's just the daughter of a certain Canaanite named Shua. So to Judah, she's just an object. She's just a receptacle for his desires. And like his dad, Judah was a broken lover and husband. And as a parent, he was broken and disengaged and distant. Look at verses 2 through 5. So Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and notice now, she called his name Onan, yet again she bore a son, and notice, she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. So, Ur, spelled backwards in the Hebrew, means evil. (laughs) That's the name he gives to his first son. It's quite a statement, don't you think? Uh, An expression of mocking, rejection of the faith of his fathers, names his first son evil, Hebrew backwards. And though Judah does name his first son, it's noteworthy that his unnamed wife is the one who names his second and third sons. Fatherly participation in naming children was at that time and still is an indicator of a vital relational involvement, right? And, and though the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous here, it seems like, it sounds like, according to verse 5, that Judah, he's not even in the same town as his unnamed wife when Sheila was born. And the name of that town that... Uh, kazib interestingly is that word is translated city of lies fitting location for a man whose history and family culture was characterized by lies and deceit but now here's the here's the harshest ripple effect of joseph's dis- disengaged parenting and, and it really doesn't all wash ashore and for about 15-20 years I, I would assume. Look at verses 6-10 through 10. Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn and her name was Tamar but Ur Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death and then Judah said to Onan Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, the last time God had put people to death in the book of Genesis was when He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And such was the judgment on Judah's two adult sons. And as a result now of their horrific wickedness, the entire family line of Judah is in jeopardy. Now see, according to the conventions of the age, it was Judah's duty to give his remaining son, Shelah, to his widowed daughter-in-law. But according to verse 11, it says, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And it's a lie. Because, it says, or for, it says, he feared that he would die like his brothers. He would not give Tamar to Shelah because he was afraid that Shelah would die if Shelah was related to Tamar. Now, see, now, this is kind of a <laughs> this is a really twisted logic, right? So, Think. Judah sold his own brother. Judah ditches the family. Judah immerses himself in a pagan world. Judah plunges into a shotgun wedding. He runs with the wrong people. He ignores his own children. But when his two Utterly wicked sons are executed by God Judah who does Judah blame? He blames the young woman if I give her to my youngest son what's going to happen? he's going to die too? and so he deceives her by saying well when Shayla's old enough I'll put you two together so this, this is a crazy making and lest we think so badly of Judah, this kind of crazy making comes naturally to each and every one of us. Because just like Judah, we are prone to live in our own little kazeb, the city of lies. Someone I, I recently read describes this distorted versions of reality overlaid with a thin layer of our own innocence and self-exoneration. That's the kind of crazy making that's going on here. Have we not, haven't you done this at some point? You know, we suffer. We all suffer. And at some point, we all suffer because of something that somebody else did. It's their actions that brought upon our suffering. But having then recognized that we sometimes suffer because of somebody else's sin, then, then we, and this is the crazy making part, we twist that. We twist that knowledge in order to find ways then to blame all of our suffering on other people. It's always somebody else's fault. And we lie to ourselves, and we come to this conviction with our twisted thoughts that all of our problems then are somehow outside of us and not inside of us. And we can become blind then to our own guilt. Or at least we can minimize it. And that blindness, that blindness can make the harmful effects of our own sin against others even more complicated, more painful. So, Judah's spiraling downward out of control. Let's look at Tamar. Here's the other main character in this narrative, and Tamar Tamar sets a trap. Here's the background. In the ancient world, people people often married shortly after puberty. So Tamar was probably just a teenager when her first husband is uh, struck dead by God. And then her second sexual partner, Onan, abused her. There was a practice called leveret marriage. And it was intended to, the purpose was to perpetuate the memory and to the honor, and the lineage of the deceased husband who died childless. And at the same time, its purpose was to alleviate the poverty of the widow and provide care for her into her old age. It was a a beautiful expression of kindness and generosity and, and care. And Onan turned it upside down. He knew, he understood, because this is the way it works, he understood that if he were to raise up a child for his dead brother, that it would be that child who would then receive the inheritance, the inheritance of the firstborn, and and not him. He, He gets nothing out of this other than to do good. And so... He acted in a way that positioned him to gain and to maintain this new position of privilege and blessing while erasing this inconvenient legacy and memory of his brother as well as, and this is the really sick part, take advantage of the opportunity to exploit Tamar. Because you see, if Onan had no intention of fathering children to take Ur's place, then there would be absolutely no reason for him to be intimate with Tamar. And instead, Onan used defenseless Tamar for his own personal sexual gratification. And this word, whenever, in verse 9 whenever he went into her, highlights the fact that what he did was repeated and regular. And it was wicked in God's sight. So Tamar's second sexual partner is struck dead, leaving her a widow twice over and still childless. And she had been privately shamed by Onan's abuse, She was publicly shamed by a growing perception we could probably assume stirred up by Judah that she was cursed. If Judah refused to keep his promise to Tamar to give her to Shelah, she would remain in this unwanted condition, very lowest level of society. One commentator says, the irony of her name highlights the cruel twist of her fate. Tamar means palm tree, an image of beauty. This young, attractive girl who once was full of hope for the future had become damaged goods. Certainly, at least in her own thinking. As probably as well in public opinion. She was yet another victim of the sins. Think of this. Tamar is another victim of the sins, of the members of the family God had chosen. Sins that turned the life into this family God chose to be a blessing to the nation's into a dark hole of suffering and shame. So today, one in every four women and one in every six men experience sexual abuse. And uh, as is so often the case, as in Tamar's case, uh, these situations are caused by or made worse by parents, family members, sometimes even fellow Christians, many, many people are deeply affected by terrible circumstances that leave them feeling like damaged goods. Many have been betrayed by those who are supposed to protect them. And so Tamar was trapped in this dark circumstance, and, and when it became obvious uh, to her that Judah had no intention of keeping his promise, then she set her own trap. If Judah was going to deceive her, then she could deceive him too, and, that, and that's really the way of Jacob's family, right? That's the Jacob's sons, deception. It's the way they operate. Now, apparently, Judah's sexual appetite was a matter of common knowledge. So, according to verse 12, as he heads out on, you know, I guess it's like a business trip at sheep shearing time, probably something of a cultural equivalent of student trips to Florida on spring break. Um, Tamar seems to understand that all she needed to do was be there and be available. And so she plays the part of a prostitute and she negotiates for Judah to leave his signet, his cord, his staff until he could make payment. Um, in other words, she, she secured the ancient equivalent of Judah's wallet, complete with driver's license and credit cards. And that was crucial since her objective was to obtain something that would identify him. And in identifying him, she had him nailed. In many ways, Tamar was just an innocent victim of the sins of Judah and his family. According to the cultural ways of that time, that part of the world, she most likely didn't even have a say in joining this family. And so the the trap that she lays for Judah was about, think about this, it was about her getting justice and making him atone for the wrongs she had suffered. Her goal was to right a wrong. But as it was with Judah, so it was with Tamar. When we sin, when we suffer, I'm sorry, when we suffer at the hands of others, we're tempted to respond sinfully. When we are wronged, we are tempted to respond wrongfully. And when we respond wrongfully, Nobody remains innocent. It can spiral into a dark, dread-filled cycle of sin and counter-sin. Just look at the world we live in today and the headlines that we read every day. And so, where then is the encouragement in the midst of such brokenness? Is there any way to break the cycle of sinners, sufferers turned Sinners and victims turned perpetrators. Loved ones, listen. God is at work to make a broken family into a harmonious worshiping community to bless the nations. This promise will be fulfilled. Jesus is building His church and not even the gates of hell can stand against it. And the encouragement does not come from anybody already caught up in the sin cycle. Someone from the outside had to break in and arrest the vortex of sinful action and sinful reaction. So it's really fitting. Remarkably, at the end of Genesis chapter 38, it it ends, the narrative ends here with the birth of twins, one whose name was Perez, which means breach, which also means. Breakthrough. And similarly here in these personal narratives of Judah and Tamar, there is the ending of a twin breakthrough for Judah and Tamar. Listen. Judah's breakthrough begins with a rumor. A rumor in verse 24. Here's what it says. About three months later... Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now here's something to pay attention to. It's it's this very, it's the very heart-breaking report news which becomes the actual occasion for all the brokenness in Judah's heart to start Coming out. That's an instructive thing for us. And so, and Judah says, Bring her out and let her be burned. You see how eager Judah is to get rid of her, to be done with her? He is still blaming her for everything that was wrong, he's still blaming her for everything that was hurtful in his life. Burn her. Then Sheila can get married. Problem solved. Family might even survive. And yet Judah is completely blind still to his own brokenness and his own hypocrisy. You know, he's the one who had been with a prostitute just three months earlier. His good old pal Hira knew about it. Probably all the residents of Enaim knew about it. Listen carefully. Even in Judah's self-righteous, self-serving brokenness and guilt, God breaks in with mercy. Look at verses 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are. The signet, the cord, the staff. And then Judah identified them. And it's in this very moment, this very unlikely, unexpected moment that God asserts His sovereign grace and the Spirit brings the light on and Judah is staring at his own personal belongings and finally, finally, is broken and comes to repentance and says, she is more righteous than I. After years of blaming everybody else in his life for all his problems... Judah finally owns up in this moment to his own guilt. He had lied to Tamar about Shelah's age. He had declined. He had denied her of her rights. And here he is literally guilty of the very sin for which he wants her to be killed. What she had done out of desperation he had done only to satisfy his unrestrained desires. And And more, this irrefutable evidence of his own guilt was also the irrefutable evidence of the lie he had been believing that he'd been telling himself. It wasn't Tamar's fault that every sexual partner she had dropped dead. He was living proof of it. He's still standing. She's not under a curse. But then consider this, and marvel at this, loved ones. It was not just Judah's relationship with Tamar in this moment that was redeemed. Her words, please identify whose these are. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Judah and his brothers had said are the exact words Judah and his brothers had said to Jacob when they brought to him Joseph's bloody robe. You see, if, if there's one thing that Judah gained from enduring, enduring, walking through all the painful losses and griefs of his life, including Genesis 38, it was a greater sympathy for his dad. Now Judah knew what it was like to lose sons. Just like Jacob, he had tried to protect his youngest, even to the disadvantage and hurt of others. It was severe mercy. It was severe mercy. But Judah's pride-shattering confrontation with the depths of his own brokenness is the very thing that led to the reconciliation to his reconciliation with his own brothers and especially his own father the breakthrough came when he finally when finally the eyes of his heart were opened to see how very much like his father he had become critical turning point in his life critical turning point in, in, in his narrative, it is remarkable to note that the events of Genesis 38 likely stretch out over the course of 20-some years. I mean, that's, we're talking about you know, him finding a wife, having sons, sons getting married, sons dying, so on and so forth. It's, it's got to be 20-something years. A period of time that matches the span of the years of Joseph, that Joseph spent in Egypt that are described in chapters 39 to 42. And so that when these, these stories come back together again in Genesis chapter 43, Joseph's story and Joseph, Judah's story are running parallel so that Ju, Judah's confession of guilt to Tamar is most likely happening. Just before what happens in Genesis 43 where a transformed Judah, a transformed man, a changed man shows compassion toward his father, understanding Jacob's pain and pledging himself to bear any blame if he failed to bring Benjamin safely home. It was important he walked through that storm. His broken and rebuilt life points us to the truth that we don't have to be crushed by our sin. There are deep things that God has for us to do, deep things, significant things. That He has planned for us. That He planned in advance that we would walk in. That we cannot do without humility and broken heartedness. And a proper perspective on ourselves. There's no other way to learn this kind of humility than to be confronted with the hurtful, foolish, shameful, sinful, disgusting things that we do ourselves. God can and does crack the hardest of hearts. God can and does reclaim the darkest of sinners. And the stunning repentance of Judah is stunningly encouraging because all of us are much darker sinners than we can imagine and much, have much harder hearts than we will admit. Now one more thing. We, we have to look at Tamar's breakthrough. It's a twin breakthrough, right? Her, her breakthrough is equally as powerful. See, you see, one moment after having compromised her innocence in a high-risk bid for personal justice, she's now on death row. Burn her! And the next moment, she's cleared. No condemnation by Judah's confession. Just like that. The family disgrace, the girl who brings bad luck to everybody with whom she comes in contact, she is now received back into the family. And Judah declares her righteous. I condemn you no more. And in telling the story, it is remarkable. Moses uses a term that is translated three times in verses 21 to 22 as cult prostitute. It's never used that way anywhere else in the Pentateuch except to describe... uh, um, well. The way it's translated everywhere else is holy woman. Holy woman. There's something, kind of a, a, a beautiful twist of redeeming irony in it, right? This victim of abuse and sexual exploitation by the power of God's redeeming grace is declared in God's Word as holy and righteous. Righteous. And further, Tamar's breakthrough placed her in the very center, at the very center of God's saving purpose to make a broken family into a company of peoples, a spiritual community of all nations. Because later in Scripture, Tamar appears at two two crucial points. One is at the wedding of Ruth and Boaz. In Ruth chapter 4 verse 12, The elders pray, may your house, Ruth and Boaz, be like the house of Perez. Breakthrough, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Is that not astonishing? That at one time she was believed to be a curse on anybody? And here in Ruth 4, her memory is now invoked as the model of God's blessing. And she appears centuries after that in Matthew's genealogy as a woman in the family line of Christ. At one time facing this hopeless future of n- nothing. No family. No anything. And now she is forever remembered in the lineage of Jesus We're all damaged goods. (laughs) We're all deeply flawed, broken. And that's why Jesus came. He is the breakthrough Son who came to seek and to save those who are lost. Through Judah and Tamar, Jesus was the Son of a sinner and a prostitute. And He brings transforming grace to sinning sufferers and victim perpetrators. And while Judah once blamed Tamar for his sins to maintain his own innocence, Jesus took our blame and He took our shame so that it might be put to death with Him once for all at the cross. And now He covers us with His perfection, saying, no more condemnation. I count you righteous. Taking away our sins, making us acceptable to His Father, and in doing so, He removes our curse forever and welcomes us safely and securely into the family of God. His company of peoples. the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray.